Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, use our study, our meditation on this text to encourage us to live our lives in such a way that they would be living testimonies to your greatness, to the reality of your gospel. And we ask this again for your glory and our joy. Amen. <clears throat> if your life was a play and you could write the script for the remaining days of your life, what would you write? If you could do anything you wanted to do, if money wasn't an issue, uh, how would you spend the rest of your days? What would you do? What would you seek to accomplish? Okay, so the question isn't what should you want, but what do you actually want? What do you really want? What is your focus in life? What motivates you? What, what are you living for, truly? Are you driven by the gospel? Are you driven by a love for the king and his kingdom? The world is everywhere. Everywhere we turn, the world is telling us what to live for. Sierra is graduating high school this year, and so she's been receiving all these college flyers in the mail and so on and so forth. One school told her to celebrate yourself. And so many others say, come here and we'll help you be the best version of you. That seems to be like the popular kind of thing to say today. I'm not so up on what's hip, but it seems that that is what's hip, be the best version of you. What are we like? An iPhone, you know, that has a version that's outdated and we can have another version that, that comes out. Um, it seems all these schools have been listening to Joel Olstein. Don't just accept whatever comes your way in life, he said. You were born to win. You were born to, for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. And that all certainly appeals to our flesh. But King Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Those words are the marching orders for the blessed. Those words are the life script for the follower of Jesus Christ. They are the purpose statement for every believer's life. Followers of Christ, true disciples are to give themselves for the kingdom. They're to give themselves for the gospel. They are to die to themselves. But what does it really look like to die to self? If dying to self is the plan for our life, if that's our life plan, then how does that look like in day-to-day -day living? What, what am I supposed to do? What things am I supposed to be thinking? Well, I believe that our text today 
uh, Matthew 5, uh, 38 through 42, answers that question. I think it gives us uh, several great examples of what it looks like to lose our lives. And it reveals to us the the privilege, the, the joy we have of dying to self for Christ. And so in Matthew 5, 38, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This rule is sometimes known as the lex talionis, or law of retaliation. We see it first in Exodus 21, 24. We read Moses teaching the Israelites, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So the principle being emphasized here was that the judges were to, were to render punishment to the guilty party consistent with the severity of the crime. So the punishment was to fit the crime. Leviticus 24, 17, Deuteronomy 19, 18, that was read earlier, teach that same concept um, in different settings, but basically the same information. And so uh, we see that this rule serves several purposes, and I'm taking this from Daniel Doriani's book, The Sermon on the Mount. He says, first, it served to purge the evil from the midst of the Israelites served to deter crime. Second, it served to provide the judges of Israel with a clear formula for just punishment. And then third, it served to guard or corral personal vendettas or excessive retribution. Now, depending on your background, your upbringing, we might look at this rule and see it as harsh. But this really is love. It loves the offended because justice is served. It loves the offender because it ensures the punishment meets the crime but doesn't go beyond the crime, and it loves society because it meets out fair punishment and provides a healthy determinant for future crimes. So this was governmental policy under a theocracy, God is king, where God is king, king of the nation of Israel, intended to curb unregenerate sinful hearts. It was intended to reduce the wickedness of society. And wherever it's mentioned, this rule was given to the judges of the people. This was not given to individuals as a way to handle interpersonal conflict, relationships. The the investigation and the ruling were to be in the hands of the appointed authorities. Now, the Jews apparently had turned this rule into an excuse for personal vindication and, and profit. It was no longer seen as a loving law intended to curb sin. Rather, it was seen as a way to make people pay or as justification to get even. And we see sinful man is always quick to twist scripture their favor for selfish gain. Um, the unregenerate or unsaved heart's problem is, is that it seeks and desires revenge. And that's the natural default of the unregenerate heart. And we see this clearly in Genesis 34. There we read how Jacob's daughter Dina was defiled by Shechem the Hivite when Jacob's sons heard about it. They were indignant and very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. And the end result was that two of Jacob's sons took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
So that was hardly uh, eye for eye. And their hard attitude was, you mess with us, you mess with Israel, we're going to teach you a lesson because that's just something that you don't do. We're going to make you pay. Uh, that's not the heart of God. That's the heart of sinful man. And so this rule was intended to prevent that exact kind of revenge and abuse. Uh, but again, man's sinful heart gravitates towards abuses here. It, it tends to see this not as a legal boundary for ruling authorities and uh, actual love for others, but as an excuse to exact punishment and get even. Make people pay. Make them give their just due. And so Jesus, the authoritative expositor, the greater Moses, the Messiah King himself who will give his life as a ransom for his people. He comes on the scene and reveals God's true heart on this matter. And, and we see that Jesus gives essentially four corrections or understanding of application and understanding to this rule. And uh, these four categories have significant overlap. The borders are shaggy of, of these categories. Um, and, and really the point here is to uh, have these uh, four categories simply just to help us Understand, meditate, chew on this text together. And so the first is this. Don't make defending your body or your honor the focus of your life, rather love. Right? Don't make defending your honor or your body the focus of your life, rather love. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I don't know about you, but I read that, and it's a little bit difficult for me to swallow. Our sinful hearts don't want to be taken advantage of. Uh, we, we do naturally want to let other people know that don't mess with me. Uh, you, you mess with me, there's going to be uh, some sort of bad things happening to you. Let's just state that clearly. We'll all get along well. Don't mess with me. So the thought of being taken advantage of eats at our soul. But Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I believe the primary context of our passage is in the ministry of the gospel, which is a 24-7 occupation for the blessed. Those who will inherit the kingdom, God's people, Christ's people, those who are uh, fitting the description of, of 1 through 12 of the Beatitudes, those who are poor in spirit, meek, peacemakers. They didn't make themselves this. Faith in Jesus as the Messiah and in the promises of, of God, what he would accomplish on their behalf, uh, that is what made them this. They were given new hearts, and so they are poor in spirit. They are meek. They are peacemakers. They are true followers of King Jesus. And so I think in order to understand this text, we've got to look at this teaching through the lens of who we are in Christ. True believers are on a mission. We're on a mission to proclaim the good news of the king and his kingdom. We've got to see this as, as instruction given to those who are the salt and the light of the world, which we saw several weeks ago meant that they were to bring the gospel to the world. They were saved for a purpose. And so in light of that mission... In light of that mission, we're not to resist evil. 
If somebody wrongs us, we're not to exact punishment. We're not to get even. In fact, I think you would agree with me that as we meditate on this text, this teaching is so radical that, that I don't think a person can truly begin to even understand Christ's words here if, if our lives are not about the gospel, if we haven't been given new hearts. Here's an example of what I mean. Martin Lloyd-Jones recounts the following story of Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, and he writes, uh, he was standing on a riverbank in China one evening, and he held a boat to take him across the river. And just as the boat was drawing near, a wealthy Chinese came along who did not recognize Hudson Taylor as a foreigner because he had affected native dress. He, was, he looked like a native. So when the boat came, he struck and thrust Hudson Taylor aside with such force that Hudson fell into the mud. Hudson Taylor, however, said nothing, but the boatman refused to take his fellow countrymen, saying, no, that foreigner called me, and the boat is his, and he must go first. The Chinese traveler was amazed and astounded when he had realized he had blundered. Hudson Taylor, though, did not complain, but invited the man into the boat with him and began to tell him what it was in him that made him behave in such a manner. As a foreigner, he could have resented such treatment, but he did not do so because of the grace of God in him. Conversation followed, which Hudson Taylor had every reason to believe made a deep impression upon that man and upon his soul. See, Hudson Taylor's heart had been touched by God, and so he was on a gospel mission 24-7. This kind of heart is the heart that will not resist the evil person, but is going to see it as a gospel opportunity. And of course, this is the example Christ set for us. 1 Peter 2, 23, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Christ's suffering only makes sense when we understand his mission, which was the glory of, of God through the great salvation that, would he, that he would bring in and through his own sufferings. It wasn't suffering for suffering's sake. There's nothing noble in that but the mission. Indeed, it was foretold hundreds of years prior uh, that the servant Messiah would not resist the evil person as he brought about the redemption of his people. We see this in Isaiah 50, verse 5, as the servant Messiah speaks. He says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So Jesus, because of his mission, willingly suffered torture in order to bring glory to God and salvation for men. And, you know, just so we're clear, this isn't a call to pacifism. As early as the second century, church leaders had taken that position. So you have St. Hippolytus, uh, 170 to 236 A.D., around there, who condemned voluntary military service by Christians. And then Tertullian came on the scene and would later condemn military service outright. Uh, during the Reformation, various Anabaptist groups such as the Swiss Brethren, Mennonites, took a pacifist view of that text as well. Leo Tolstoy, uh, he kind of taught against uh, 
having police for that reason. But this is not a text about self-defense, just wars, having police. That's not its purpose. We need to remember that, that Christ is addressing, he's, he's addressing people. He's addressing the, the heart behind this command and helping people understand really what's going on here. He's, he's not addressing governmental laws per se. The Jews, as we said, it would appear, got this mixed up, and so Jesus is correcting their error. He's given the true and right understanding. And, as it turns out, love often requires that we resist evil. Again, we've got to keep the context of all of this chapter 5 in our minds. In Galatians 2, we know that Paul resisted Peter to his face because Peter had taken a stance that was detrimental to the gospel. Love required Paul to oppose Peter on that. What Peter had done wasn't good for the cause of the gospel, nor was it good for those souls who had been influenced by Peter. Then in Acts 22, we read that Paul was about to be flogged, although he was innocent. And so he said, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And at that word, the soldier refrained from flogging him. And so in that instance, love required that Paul resist evil, verbally and defend himself. Because Paul spoke up, the soldier was given the opportunity there to obey the law, which kept him from sin. Romans 13 clearly states that governments are provided for our own benefit. And so in this case, the loving thing to do was to give the Roman soldier the opportunity to obey the law of the land. In John 18.22, we read of Jesus when when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In that in- instance, uh, for the sake of the gospel and Christ's mission, it was better for Christ to, uh, to challenge why the guy struck him. Jesus didn't turn the other cheek, but verbally challenged his persecutor, confronted them with their sin, which was the loving thing uh, to do in that instance. It helped us understand that that Christ was pure and holy and the high priest was wrong in his assessment. And so this teaching of Jesus is is not an endorsement for pacifism. It's not another rule, but explains God's heart. God's heart is this, that the focus of our lives, the focus of our lives, what we worship, what motivates all that we do is not to be ultimately the protection of our own bodies, but the, but the glory of God. We're not bound to be lifeless doormats for abusive people. God's love is to be our guide. So this love might look different in different situations. For some of you, for me at times, this really bothers us because we like things black and white. We like to be told what to do, what not to do. You know, just tell me what to do and what not to do. Just tell me what clearly is sin and what's not clearly sin. But we see that Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount and in much of his, his teaching, is constantly challenging that desire and he forces the blessed to think deeply about his word and about the glory of God and to look at life through the lens of the gospel. That is to be their guide. That is to be their, their motivation. And so oftentimes... We're left needing to wrestle with these things that we're trying to make sense of. This passage isn't a list of rules, but but various examples of what it looks like 
for the blessed in particular to deny themselves for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. It's not about just wars. It's not about rights of governments. Not a call to accept everybody regardless of, of how they act. It's an understanding that love seeks what is best for others in light of eternity. And to wallow in a lost condition, to remain in sin, spend eternity in hell is not what is best for people. So back to verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So a strike to the right cheek coming from the hand of another, if he's facing you, would be something more of like a, a backhand. It's a slap to the face, not, not, a, not a fist fight. It's a dishonorable slap. If a person slapped in the face, they've been publicly dishonored. Anybody around them has, has seen that dishonor. Um, in the 17 and 1800s, maybe even earlier in our country, honor was taken so seriously that men fought duels over slights to their character, over slaps in the face. One of the famous, most famous duels I'm sure you're aware of in, in our history occurred in 1804 when Aaron Burr was defamed journalistically by Alexander Hamilton. The two had been having some issues for some time, but this, this public defamation of character was, was the last straw, and so the, tool, uh, the, the two fought a duel over that matter. Aaron Burr survived, Hamilton did not. For the unregenerate heart, personal honor is an extremely serious matter. But Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek and brings you dishonor, don't get even. Give him the other cheek. Remember, you're the blessed. You followers of Jesus Christ, you're on a, on a gospel mission. Your life is not your own. You're to be the salt and light of the world. You to do your king's bidding. And your honor is not all important, he says. Your honor is not all that important, but the honor of your king's is. And so a gospel-centered life, a life saturated by a love for God and love for people, often requires that offenses are overlooked. But again, this doesn't mean that we never challenge another person's actions. Uh, we just saw that Jesus challenged those who struck him. So for sure, that's not something that we're going to apply in, in every situation. We also have Matthew 18, 15 that tells us if our brother sins against us, we're to go to him and, and let him know that he sinned against us. The principle here is, is that we're not to worship or focus on our honor, but let the gospel and the, and the glory of Jesus Christ guide our actions. That is what it looks like to die to self. Others ought to be more important, Philippians 2.3 points out. We go to our brother um, because of Matthew 18, but we don't go for our own vindication. We go out of concern for our brother. Right? He's acting like an unbeliever. He, he has sinned, and it's best for our brother, and it's best for the church that we go. But we, we don't go to, to verbally spank him and let him know, look, you, don't, you can't do that to me. You don't mess with me. But for someone who doesn't know Jesus and, and is not among the blessed and is not our brother, it's often best to off the other cheek and have our honor offended for the sake of the gospel. So we're going to apply this differently in different situations. But for the blessed, for sure, what we can take from this is that we're not to be ruled by our honor. Many times in, in churches, people are offended and want the leaders to go and, and take care of the matter. 
When we moved to South Dakota, I was on a job less than a week. And two older ladies in the congregation, one called me to her house and wanted me to settle a dispute between this other, her and this other lady. The other lady was offending her, had offended her, wanted me to, wanted me to take care of it. Concern wasn't for her sister, but her own honor. And Jesus says, forget about your honor. Follow me. I didn't die on the cross because you were so honorable, but because you were so wicked. I endured suffering for the sake of sinners. I was on a mission. That's the essence, really, of Philippians 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name and all that we know to the glory of God the Father. We live for the glory of God. That's why we were saved. That's why we exist. That's to be our focus, not our own honor, not our own personal safety. We're to be sought in light. We're to take the gospel to the nations. We're to influence those around us to embrace Christ and his kingdom. And we do this not by focusing on our own personal safety and honor. We do this by letting our personal safety and honor go. And this is our privilege. This is our joy. John Piper sums up this text when he says, if selfishness and fear keep us from giving and going the extra mile, then we need to be broken by these words. The Lord cuts away our love for possessions and our love for convenience. That's the point here. Don't act merely out of your own private benefit, your clothes, your convenience, your possessions, your safety. Instead, by trusting Jesus, become the kind of person who is utterly free from these things to live for others. We are people of the cross. Our Lord submitted to crucifixion willingly to save his enemies. We owe our eternal life to him. We are forgiven sinners. This takes the swagger out of our protests. It takes the arrogance out of our resistance. And so we are to be like Hudson Taylor and suffer dishonor and, and personal harm for the sake of the gospel. We are to follow Christ's example. And then second, don't make defending your rights the focus of your life, rather love. Jesus goes on and says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Christ's day, people wore an outer garment called a cloak and an inner garment called a tunic. In Exodus 22, 26, we read, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you should return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it's his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So Jewish law prohibited taking another's outer garment for payment, but not necessarily the tunic or the inner garment. People in this day didn't have walk-in closets. They had very little clothing. And so to take someone's outer garment was essentially to take away their shelter. That's Exodus 22. It was to reduce them to beyond poor. It was cruel. It was lacking compassion. And so doing that was forbidden. Right? If they owed you money, whatever, you weren't, able to do, you weren't able to take that cloak. It was the person's right. Um, by law to keep their outer cloak or the robe. But Jesus says if a person sues you and wants your inner garment, give them the outer one as well. Basically saying, give up your right there even, by law. Now, of course, he, he doesn't want us to run around without clothes. That would be the case if we took his words literally, something like that. 
But he's simply saying that we should not be focused on our rights. Our life shouldn't be focused on that. Our, our life shouldn't be defined by our pursuit of our rights. The goal of life of the true believer, the blessed, is not to demand their rights. Jesus says, let it go. The sum of your life doesn't consist in your so-called rights. In fact, you might be asked to lay aside your personal rights for the sake of, of the kingdom. Your eternity is secure. This life is short. Let it go. Let me talk to the, the kids, the young adults here for a minute. Uh, you're often in situations where you find your rights limited by your parents sometimes, right? And your siblings. And uh, you might be in the habit of being quick to defend your rights rather than love those around you. But that's not the way of Christ. If you are a Christ follower, uh, let it go. Philippians 2 says that Jesus set aside his rights as God in order to be our substitute for sin. Right? He, he had reasons why he was letting things go. And so sometimes love for your siblings and your parents uh, might require that you set aside some of your rights. And so things might not be fair, but it's more gospel-centered, more Christ-exalting to endure an, an injustice than it is to be consumed with things being fair and insisting on your rights. Those who demand their rights and are focused on their rights in life are not those who trust in a sovereign God who knows all and sees all. And so love might require that you, you hold those rights loosely for the sake of the gospel. And someone who does that, their testimony is otherworldly. It points to Christ in them if they're doing it for the right reasons. Sometimes we adults have taken up our own, made our own inalienable rights. So we think that we've earned the right to sit back and take things easy. And so when our neighbors or our children or our government disturbs our peace, we demand our rights. And not so the blessed. The blessed have been given new hearts, new desires, and so are willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. That doesn't mean that we defend the rights of others, or that we don't defend the rights of others. I'm not saying that we don't defend the rights of others. But we are those who have an eternity that is secure, and so we are free, if, it need, if need be, for the sake of the gospel, and the sake of, of the glory of our king, to let these things go. So the, the blessed are willing to be disturbed for the sake of their king. His glory is their aim now. Again, they're on a mission. Corrie Ten Boone and her sister Betsy were sentenced to a German concentration camp for hiding Jews during World War II. I'm sure you're familiar with her story. But at one point, Corrie recounts in, in her book, The Hiding Place, that one of the female guards was making fun of how little sick and elderly Betsy could manage with a shovel. It was acting out how she could only handle a little bit. And Betsy laughed with the guard as the guard mimicked her. And, and then Betsy said, that's me all right, but you'd better let me totter along with my little spoonful or I'll have to stop altogether. The guard's plump cheeks went crimson. I'll decide who's to stop. And snatching the leather crop from her belt, she slashed Betsy across the chest and the neck. Well, Corey... Her sister, younger sister, sought to strike the guard with her shovel in revenge. But Betsy stopped her and said, don't look at my wound, Corey. Look at Jesus only. 
And then before uh, she died, Betsy told Corey, we must tell people what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. Only a gospel-saturated life, only someone who has been given a new heart and fits the description of the Beatitudes in 1 through 12 of chapter 5 can focus on the king and his kingdom like this and not be consumed, not be ruled by their own rights. And true believers see that as lovely because it, it helps us see that Betsy was not living for this life. It helps us see that, that Betsy believed the gospel and it, and it brings to life the miracle that God wrought in her. And then third, don't make defending your freedom the focus of your life, rather love. Don't make defending your freedom the focus of your life. Jesus says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In the days of the first century, Roman soldiers were allowed to commandeer their citizens and, and to haul military or government baggage for 1,000 paces, I guess a Roman mile. <clears throat> so if a person was plowing a field, taking a journey, whatever they were doing, the Roman soldier could force them to stop what they're doing, carry their baggage. The Jewish nation at this time was under the control of the Roman Empire, and they resented uh, these foreign occupiers. And so this practice, we can imagine, surely invoke some inner rage, if not external outrage. But Jesus shockingly says that if you are asked to carry baggage one mile, serve by going an extra mile. Don't make your life center on or be about defending your freedom. Serve the, the soldier with joy and gladness and, and cause him to ponder your motivation. Remember, you're salt and light. That, that's your function. Your eternity, your future is already secure. As followers of Jesus Christ, we already win. We, we already win. Our future is secure. So, so that means that you're free, free to spend and be spent for the gospel. That frees you up to do some crazy things in order to move people closer to Christ and closer to the gospel. And so because these realities are yours in Christ, go two miles. Perhaps your service will, will indeed win converts. And even if it doesn't win converts, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and you will have brought him glory, just like Betsy. In Russia during the 1960s, a young woman named Varia came to know the Lord through a friend who had been unjustly in prison. Later, when Varia herself was in prison, she wrote her friend, My heart praises and thanks God that through you, he showed me the way to salvation. Now, being on this way, my life has a purpose, and I know where to go and for whom I suffer. Right? So she had an understanding now that helped her make sense of suffering, and her, purpose had take, her, her suffering had taken on different purpose. She says, I feel the desire to tell and to witness to everybody about the great joy of salvation that I have in my heart. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nobody and nothing, neither prison nor suffering. The sufferings that God sends us only strengthen us more and more in the faith in him. My heart is so full that the grace of God overflows. At work, they curse and punish me, giving me extra work because I cannot be silent. I must tell everyone what the Lord has done for me. He has made me a new being, a new creation. 
of me who was on my way of perdition. Can I be silent after this? No, never. As long as my lips can speak, I will witness to everyone about his great love. I mean, the way she describes things here makes you want to join her in that, that Siberian work camp, doesn't it? You see, gospel-centered lives often don't realize that they've just gone two miles because they were focused on something else. Serve the Lord with gladness for the sake of his kingdom in response to all he's done for us. Uh, basically, the blessed, true believers have more important, eternally important matters to focus on than their own personal freedoms. They get lost in the gospel. And then lastly, don't make defending your stuff the focus of your life, rather love. Don't make defending your stuff the focus of your life. Jesus says again, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The blessed have their minds set on eternity where moth and rust do not destroy. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're seeking after his kingdom and his righteousness, not the things of the world. And so this new heart frees up the blessed to be extremely generous. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. See, the blessed always have one eye on eternity. And that reality, right, that's the fruit of true salvation, but, but, but that reality causes them then to look at things in this life differently. And so they're not like the pagans. They're not like the Gentiles. In Matthew 6, 25 and following talks about, they're not seeking after the same things because one God is their father. He knows all their needs. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, all of those things. Uh, but then, two, um, because they've been saved, they have a different mission, different folks in life. Their best life isn't now. It's, it's then. And so that causes them to treat material possessions in a different way. That is what allows them to be generous. That's why the blessed are generous. Right? This isn't giving for the sake of giving. That's, that's the point. This is strategic, gospel-centered, God-honoring giving. And so gospel love, again, is to be our guide. Sharing our possessions is going to bring God glory and possibly point someone to the kingdom, then we're not to worry about our stuff. We're to give it away. The righteous are going to be taken care of in the end. I used to read this, and I used to believe uh, that this required me to give... Of, to anyone if they asked. That's actually easier because then I don't have to wrestle with wisdom and my heart doesn't have to be in the right spot. I can just be kind of committed to this rule and think that I'm doing things in a way that honors the Lord by just, oh yeah, here, sure it is. You know. But the blessed we said, they're not given a bunch of rules to follow. We've been given new hearts new desires, and we're to be guided by the gospel and Christ's glory. And so we're to wrestle with these things. And so this, this passage isn't trying to speak to all circumstances at all. It's not trying to give a rule, but it's just giving some examples of what it looks like to die to self, what it looks like to be a Christian.
And to die to ourselves means that we will hold, right? Not that we should hold, but that we will hold our earthly goods loosely and see them as expendable for the kingdom. We're stewards of the stuff God has given us. And so giving money to a drunk so he can go around the corner and buy more booze, not only foolish, but it's extremely unloving and doesn't work towards the end of building Christ's kingdom. To die to ourselves means that we're going to hold our earthly goods loosely, see them as expendable for the kingdom. I do think that we need to be careful not to lessen the force of this word. 1 John 3, 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed or in truth. But the one who has been saved understands that his brothers and sisters in Christ, that context, are extremely valuable to the king, and so they're more important than him, and it's their, and it's their privilege. Right? That, that soul is important, so important that Christ shed his blood, and so then they're going to be generous. This is a little bit uh, uh, applying, really, what Denny was teaching us last week. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, lays out Christ's principle for us and says, Our Lord here is unveiling and exposing this horrible thing that controls the natural man, self. That terrible legacy that has come down from the fall of man and which makes man glorify himself and set himself up as a god. He protects this self all along and in every way. But he does it not only when he's attacked or when something is taken from him, he does it also in the matter of his possessions. If anyone wants to borrow from him, his instinctive response is, why should I part with my goods and impoverish myself? It's self the whole time. I'm sure many of you have heard of George Mueller and how he gave away his fortune and built all these orphanages in England during the 1800s on a shoestring and prayer, right? But he was known as a man of not only prayer, but also of the word. And many times he was without money and without resources, and he would give his last morsel to an orphan. Now, I'm bringing up George Mueller here because I don't agree with his interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the, the treasure text, the money text. His understanding was that for him, as he understood it, not to store up treasures in heaven meant that he couldn't have something in the bank account. He, he was a gentleman in those days, independently wealthy. He, he, gave, it, he gave it all away um, because he thought that that's what that text was telling him he ought to do. Um, so I don't agree with all of that, but I absolutely love how his actions highlight the value of his king. And that this life was not his home. It encourages me in the reality and the truths of the gospel. That it's real because I see this guy doing something that seems impossible. And it is impossible apart from a new heart. I think these stories inspire us because they're so otherworldly. So extraordinary. Proof of the reality of the gospel. A miracle beholding, unfolding before our eyes. But Christ says that this is how it is to be for all of his disciples, for all of the blessed. Spend and be spent for the gospel. And, and not only our finances, but also our rights, our honor, our very lives.
In Matthew 26, 65, we read, Then the high priest tore his robes and said of Jesus, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? But our Savior didn't retaliate with anger at the affront to his honor and his glory, even though he was and is God. When he was on the cross, he, he prayed for his accusers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His love for the Father, his love for the mission, required him to turn the other cheek in that particular case. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies of Christ, he gave up his rights for us. I'm so glad he turned the other cheek there. Aren't you? This glorious truth frees, frees disciples to be extremely generous for the sake of the kingdom. It frees us up to relinquish our rights. It frees us up to put aside our honor and serve others sacrificially. It frees us up to make the focus of our lives his kingdom, not our own freedom. We can be generous because God has been so generous with us. We can spend our lives loving God because he spent his life loving us. So brothers and sisters, don't waste your life ensuring that you get your piece of, of the pie here on earth. Don't waste your life calculating every move so that things turn out for your own benefit. Rather, be consumed with what benefits your fellow man and, and be obsessed with what is going to move them closer to the kingdom. Right? Concern yourself with pleasing God rather than demanding your own rights. Man, seek to live in such a way that you encourage people, that your life encourages people in the reality of the gospel, in the extreme value of Jesus Christ. Not stuff, not rights, not honor, or even freedom. We know life is short. Sooner rather than later, we're all going to be in the grave. Live your life in such a way that on that day, people are going to be encouraged in the reality of the gospel, in the extreme value of Jesus Christ, because of how you lived your life. Because how your life was not about stuff, was not about demanding rights and honor and even freedom. Imitate Christ. I love others by dying to self in order to live for his kingdom. Now, if you're not a believer, then this picture that Christ paints in this text is absolutely impossible for you to do it with the right motives. It is the standard for your life, I believe, and, and I believe you'll be judged by it. But you're completely unable to do this apart from God's work in your life. Embrace Jesus as your king and know that he paid the penalty for your sins. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Know that when he was on the cross, when he turned the other cheek, 
that was for the sins of his people. And be reconciled with your maker. And when you do this, you're going to see that he gives you a new heart, one that desires to spend and be spent for your Savior. For those of us who have already been touched by the grace of God and have been given new hearts, this is, this, this is a bold and powerful vision of the, the wonderful, compelling life of the blessed. Th this is how we're to live. We're, we're to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel and for our worthy king. We can't do any of this in our own strength, but in the power of Christ's spirit that lives in all true believers. He helps us in this. We should encourage each other to live this way by our example, but also in our words, coming alongside of each other, reminding each other of all of these realities. As Hebrews 12, 1 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, right? Not for no reason, not for suffering's sake, but for the joy, the gospel joy set before him, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So brothers and sisters, excel still more. Let's pray. Lord, we see your, your teaching here as glorious. We also see the other worldly nature of it. We see our need for you to help us in this. Even on this side of the cross, when we have been given new hearts, when we, we are at some level and in an increasing measure characterized as the blessed, meek and humble, peacemakers. But even then, Lord, it, it is not easy for us. And so we, we ask that you would cause us to want what you want, to love what you love, hate what you hate. Help us to hold the things of this world loosely. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who might not know you truly. I pray that you would grant them repentance, give them a new heart, give them eyes to see and ears to hear the glories of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on that cross for sinners. We ask this in Christ's precious name, amen.